Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome everyone to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. Today on the pod, will he or won't he? A group of prominent liberals tries to convince Mike Schreiner to take off his green jacket and put on a red one. Will they or won't they? The Prime Minister and the Premiers sit down for a health summit this week in hopes of hammering out a new agreement. And the Ontario New Democrats make it official. Marit Stiles was installed over the weekend as the official opposition's new leader. It's Tuesday, February 7th, 2023, so let's get to it. Uh, I'm sorry, you are, I I recognize you, but I I just can't quite put a name. We've met a few times, it's John McGrath, don't worry about it. John, John, John Michael Michael McGrath? John Michael McGrath, yes. Because I know a John McGrath. I'm pretty sure that's your dad, I used to work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Hey, welcome back to the uh, voice booth. Uh, Yes, yes. I take it you're testing negative now. Well, one would hope at this point. <laughs> yeah, okay. uh, yes, no, I, I uh, started testing positive late last week, and uh, we decided I think it was uh, safe for me to be back in a uh, you know, sealed room of dodgy ventilation. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't sound that uh, comforting the way you put it. But uh, anyway, it's good to see you again, and welcome back. Good to be back here in person. Yeah. Now, let's before we go any further, I want to do a shout-out off the top here to a guy named Michael Benton. Michael and I met last week at the 125th anniversary celebrations for the Canadian Club of Toronto. He works for the U.S. consulate in Toronto, and he said to help him prepare for this job that he has at the consulate, he started listening to, would you believe it, this podcast, even before he arrived in Canada to take up this assignment. And, of course, I wondered, JMM, whether he was really, you know, was he just saying this to me because he was trying to make me feel good, or did he really listen? And then he referred to you as JMM. And then he told me at the end of our conversation to stay positive but test negative. And I thought, okay, he really is a listener. So thank you, Michael. Great to meet you. And uh, do keep listening. I'm suddenly wondering if anyone would actually pay money for T-shirts with our faces on them. I mean, I I love my wife and I know she loves me, but I don't believe in a million years she would pay cash money for something like that. I totally agree. Let's perish that thought right away. Uh, Listeners know that we've begun taking questions and uh, discussion prompts from our audience off the top of the podcast. Uh, A reminder, you can do this by emailing onpolitics at tvo.org. What do we have in the mailbag this week, Steve? Well, we got this prompt from a listener who must be as strange as we we are because he writes, quote, I am a regular listener to the show. I enjoy the deep dives on the nerdy stuff. I have a suggestion for a regular segment or an explainer. I think it would be good to have a regular what's new on the regulatory registry section or at minimum an explainer on regulations and how they are drafted. A couple of years ago, he continues, I had reason to watch the registry. I was interested in some small niche changes that were being proposed. I was surprised at the breadth of things that were subject to consultation, as well as how specific some of the changes were. We spend a lot of time focusing on legislation, but the regs are so important for filling in the gaps. Thanks and keep up the great work. Well, thank you for that note, which, like us, is deeply in the weeds of public policy. Maybe maybe we can respond by just having you explain, JMM, the importance of regulations separate from the passage of a new law 
because the the writer is correct. There is a difference. No, it's an it's an important difference. I think certainly listeners of this podcast are probably uh, well versed in the fact that you know when the legislature passes a law, there are uh, three readings, three votes. The lieutenant governor signs the bill, and it becomes law. That is most of the time, just the beginning of the story, and very rarely is it the end of the story. Uh, Laws mostly don't go into effect immediately. Uh, They have to be uh, proclaimed. Sometimes the government will proclaim different sections of the law in effect at different times. And uh, the government usually has to make regulations. Usually the law is just empowering uh, a minister to make regulations regarding a a certain matter. And the government then takes its time to go out, do public consultations, and uh, figure out what those regulations should look like. And the regulatory registry that the uh, correspondent here uh, mentioned is one of the the basic ways that the government does this. It posts the regulations for the public to look at and comment on at any corporate, you know, in theory, if if the system is working the way we imagine it should, uh, the government would then incorporate that input into the regulations that it eventually passes. Now, of course, sometimes the government already knows what it wants to do when it Mm -hmm. posts these regulations and it ignores all of that input because this is also politics. Um, But it is an important part of the machinery of how the government actually works. And I happen to have been reading some of the postings on the regulatory registry before we started recording. Because you knew I I not surprised? (laughs) Why am I not surprised? Um, So uh, just uh, today, before we started recording, the government posted a... um, You knew it was going to be a planning matter, Steve. Of course You knew it was going to be a housing matter. This is from the Ministry of Municipal Affairs and Housing. Uh, Basically, it it may surprise you to learn that the province of Ontario doesn't do a ton of data collection regarding how many homes get uh, approved by local municipalities for construction every year. The municipalities do collect all that data, but there's no central provincial clearinghouse for that data. The Ford government would like to change that. They've passed some legislation to allow the minister to require municipalities to report that data to them. That regulation has now been posted literally just earlier today on the regulatory registry. People uh, will have time to uh, respond to this proposal. One imagines municipalities will have some things that they want to say about it. Also, developers, uh, other uh, third parties, everybody's welcome to comment uh, on it. Uh, And then after a certain amount of time, the government will take that advice, take that input, and they will either uh, modify the the proposal or they will just uh, go ahead with the regulation as it has been proposed. Now, if you're the provincial government, I can understand why you'd want that, because you've made a promise to have 1.5 million homes built in the province of Ontario. Well, how do you know if you're hitting your target if you don't hear from all the municipalities about how many homes they're actually having built? You know, and this is, I I think, something that has uh, bedeviled the provincial government long since before uh, Premier Ford was elected. I mean, I I certainly remember cases uh, even under the Liberal government where they sort of discovered accidentally, usually because of the work of of activists um, in places like Simcoe County, they discovered that the planning policy that they had written up, you know, in the Premier's office, in the Ministry office at Queen's Park, Uh, simply was not translating into the results they had anticipated. And they didn't know because they they didn't have the data. They were not collecting the data. Hmm. And so this is one of those things where I kind of think any government was going to have to start moving in this direction eventually. I've just thought of a regulation that I can think of that the government needs to pass forthwith. I think we need a regulation guaranteeing 
that the Maple Leafs win at least one round of the Stanley Cup playoffs this year. Can we get the members of the legislature to get on that right away? Well, unfortunately, uh, this is not in provincial jurisdiction. Uh, our, our listeners, of course, know that uh, there is provincial jurisdiction, there is federal jurisdiction. <laughs> uh, what you are asking for is the jurisdiction of the Almighty. <laughs> <laughs> Sad but true. I think you're right on that one. Anyway. Uh, now, on to issue one. I'm proud to be the leader of the Ontario Green Party. I'm proud of the fact that we lead the charge on so many issues. And I believe I'm best positioned to lead that charge as a leader of the Ontario Green Party. And I have no plans to run for leader of the Liberal Party. That was Green Party of Ontario leader Mike Schreiner last December. That was then. This is now. The Ontario Liberals have come third in the last two elections. That's the first time that's ever happened in Ontario history. And it's got many wondering what kind of future, if any, the party truly has. Some people think the party's next leader should come from within, someone who spent many years as a liberal. But a group of a few dozen other liberals, some of them quite high profile, incidentally, has begun a campaign to draft the current leader of the Greens, Mike Schreiner, to run for the leadership, arguing the problems the Ontario Liberals currently have would best be solved by a genuine outsider who can offer some outside-of-the-box thinking. JMM, here's one thing we know. For the first time in a long time, people are actually talking and thinking about the future of the Ontario Liberal Party. I wrote a column at TVO.org all about this, but I will give our listeners the uh, TLDR version. Uh, I'm not a fan. (laughs) Uh, I think it's a mistake to think that Uh, Schreiner's personal popularity would just transfer wholesale to another party even if he wins the contest, and there is no guarantee he would, and it does appear that it will actually be a contested nomination. Uh, The people wooing him don't seem to represent an obvious outright majority of the Liberal Party membership, and I think it is obvious that running and losing would be bad for Schreiner. Uh, I'm also not sure that running and winning (laughs) would be any better for him, uh, since being the leader of a party vying for for actual political power would mean he can't be the conscience of the legislature anymore. He would need to make all sorts of uh, messy compromises. And TLDR stands for what, Mr. McGrath? Oh, uh, uh, too long, didn't read. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. Okay. Well, I'm not going to offer a view on whether Mike Schreiner should or should not run. That's his business. He doesn't need any advice from me on that. And even if he thought he did, I wouldn't offer it anyway. But here is the, here's the argument on why he should do it. The proponents who've got this draft Mike website going argue the following. Number one, the Green Party has gone as far as it's going to go. It only ever wins one seat. Mike Schreiner's in Guelph. And even in the last election seven months ago, when all the ducks were aligned for the party to win a second seat, it did not. They argue the Greens have hit their ceiling. Number two, if Schreiner wants to be the MPP for Guelph for the next 20 years, he probably can be. He's respected, he's popular, he punches above his weight at Queen's Park. But, number three, this group argues, if he actually wants to be in a position to implement his agenda, it's certainly more likely to be as the leader of the Liberal Party than of the Green Party. Four, how many progressive parties do we need splitting the anti-Tory vote? The Greens got 6% of the vote in the last election. If Schreiner could bring the lion's share of that over to the Liberals, the Liberals would quickly become the prime alternative to the Tories. And five, perhaps most significantly, this group argues there's no obvious leader in waiting within the party ranks of the Liberals currently, who has so energized the base and who is so obviously better than all the other 
alternatives, thereby making an outsider a viable option this time in a way it might not be on other occasions. Okay, those are the main arguments. What do you say to all of that? Well, let me glom on to your last point there, the party needing someone who can energize the base. Uh, In particular, I think a lot of Liberals right now are deeply worried about their party's prospects with young voters. Uh, And we know from the party's own postmortem that they really struggled with recruiting volunteers in the last election. So in that sense, I, I do absolutely agree that there is a problem for the party to solve here. My uh, skepticism about this is whether Schreiner is the right answer to that problem. Uh, I think a lot of what we're talking about right now is uh, liberals asking what it is their party stands for, uh, or to put it a bit more bluntly, what's the reason for the Liberal Party to exist in 2023? Great question. Uh, so, you know, what question is it the answer to? And the liberals who are reacting negatively to this idea are doing so, I think, because it's kind of a conundrum if the answer to why Ontario needs a Liberal Party is because the province needs a Green MPP as premier. <laughs> well, okay, let me pick up on the, the the notion that so many people have reacted negatively to this. And there has been a lot of blowback from some people. And that has surprised me, frankly, because the reaction among some liberals, in my view, who don't like this idea, has been wildly over the top. Some of the rhetoric, I think, has been just wacko. I mean, one criticism the liberals have had to face over the years is that they're a closed shop of lefty insiders who are a bit too smug and too arrogant and think they know best. And this reaction to the notion that the Green Party leader, who shares a lot of the same values that they do, is such an egregious violation of the party's tradition, well, let's just say I think it's a bit much. Let's also acknowledge this. There is no great precedent in our lifetimes for this. That is true. Many liberals courted the former leader of the Ontario NDP to run for the federal liberal leadership, and Bob Ray, our current ambassador to the UN, of whom I speak, did answer that call. And while he didn't win the liberal leadership, he did become interim leader before Justin Trudeau took over and, in effect, saved the party from being totally irrelevant in Parliament so that when Trudeau did take over, he actually had something to take over. Now, I appreciate Ray was not the leader of the NDP when he was courted to run for the Liberals, so it's not a perfect comparison. But Winston Churchill switched parties, Bob Ray switched parties, Ujjal Dosange switched parties, Maxime Bernier switched parties, Scott Bryson switched parties, David Ramsey switched parties. I mean, I could go on here. Switching parties... John Michael, it's hardly unprecedented. Uh, No, it it absolutely is not uh, uh, unprecedented. I I do feel like we can't close the segment without noting that uh, several prominent Green Party members released an open letter of their own. Uh, This one calling on liberals to have Mike Schreiner as leader the easy way by joining the Green Party. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's good to see that everyone is having a bit of fun with this topic. Uh, Just to remind our listeners that the liberal leadership race, formally speaking, hasn't begun yet, and we will get more details about its eventual format uh, sometime after the Liberals have their next annual general meeting in March. Now on to issue two. And I've said, if coming out of this agreement, we don't see a commitment to hiring more nurses and doctors and frontline healthcare workers, the agreement will be a failure. Because the problem we're up against is a shortage of healthcare workers. The solution has to include hiring more healthcare workers. Will you pull the plug on the government if that happens? Will you pull the plug on the Liberal government if they don't have what you so, want there? So that's not a decision that we're making today. What we're doing today was a fighting for our healthcare system. We're defending the public system and we're putting pressure on this government to do the right thing. That's federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh commenting at the Ontario NDP Leadership Convention on Saturday about what he wants to see in a health care agreement between the feds and the provinces. And you heard me ask him whether he'd bring down the federal liberal government if he didn't get what he was after, and you heard Singh's response. 
JMM, the healthcare summit between the feds and the provinces takes place on Tuesday. So by the time some people hear this, there may have already been an announcement on this file. But uh, let's let's try this. What's at stake here, in your view? Uh, in short, everything. Uh, some of the background here. The mistake that the federal government is trying to avoid this time is what happened nearly 20 years ago when uh, Paul Martin's government gave a lot of money to the provinces for health care, did not attach uh, a ton of conditions to that money. The provinces shoveled it into pretty much whatever they wanted, including their health care systems. Uh, in other words, all the improvements and reforms that the feds were uh, hoping to buy didn't really happen. It just sort of disappeared into the maw of spending. Uh, in fact, I mean, in some cases, you saw provinces, uh, Quebec, for example, took the money and uh, just gave it to provincial taxpayers in the form of a, a big honking tax cut. So this time, Prime Minister Trudeau wants to make sure that if he does hand out a whack of cash to this group of premiers, and, and we will, of course, note that it's a lot of conservative premiers at the table this time around, uh, the government is going to get the kind of improvements that they believe are needed that uh, and they are insisting on. The feds are also looking for provinces to agree to some kind of, um, let's say, more robust national data standards than already exist. And I think the virtue of that has been proven uh, from COVID, where, frankly, we haven't always had great uh, data uh, across the provinces. And this might seem like an obvious point here, but I'm just going to you know, reiterate it. You know, healthcare is the single biggest line item in provincial budgets. So even relatively small percentage changes in what the provinces have to spend uh, themselves can be huge sums in terms of dollars. Uh, with an aging population nationally, basically every observer expects healthcare spending to increase pretty dramatically over coming decades. So the structure of these agreements between the federal and provincial government is hugely significant. Now, the provinces have responded to that money, yes, but strings attached in different ways. So far, I think much to the surprise of many, it was Premier Doug Ford who actually was the first premier out of the gate to say he is open to taking money with strings attached, right? Yes. And there's two ways to look at that, uh, as there always is. There's an optimistic and a cynical one. <laughs> um, on the one hand, the simple reality is that whatever the federal conditions are, whatever happens next, it will still be the case that the vast majority of money being spent on health care in Ontario will come from the Ontario government. And when it's spending its own money, Queen's Park can do more or less what it wants with that money. The one condition the feds will probably be asking for, as we mentioned earlier, is some kind of guarantee that increased health transfers don't simply end up subsidizing other non-health programs or even just tax cuts, as we mentioned earlier. Uh, but the reality is these kinds of conditions are just difficult to enforce. And, you know, this gets to the second point, the slightly more cynical one. Let's say we get an agreement signed this week that imposes conditions on provincial governments. If Doug Ford signs an agreement on behalf of Ontario in 2023 and then brings in a raft of tax cuts in 2026 as he's running for re-election, is the prime minister or any prime minister, because this federal parliament will not last until 2026, is the prime minister going to actually try and claw back some of the health transfer? Frankly, I have a hard time imagining it. Gotcha. On to issue three. What do you say to people who say an NDP government, never mind a majority that some spoke about on the stage, isn't quite realistic for the next election? Oh, they haven't met me yet. That's what I'm going to say. They haven't met me yet. We're, we're going to win this election. I feel absolutely confident in that. And, uh, and, and I think that's because I know how to win. That was CBC journalist Clara Pasica asking the Ontario NDP's new leader, Marit Stiles, about the party's prospects now that she's the leader and the new leader's response. 
I went down to the Metro Toronto Convention Center on Saturday to take in the festivities. Of course, uh, wasn't much of a contest. In fact, it wasn't a contest at all. Marit Stiles got into the race early. She scared off all the other pretenders to the NDP throne with her superior organization and fundraising efforts. And so she was acclaimed as the new NDP leader. Uh, in fact, she had a very funny line when she uh, took over. I think uh, when she got to the microphone after being introduced, she said, can you stand the suspense or something <laughs> like that? Or how suspenseful? Anyway, it was a line like that. Uh, JMM, the House returns in about two weeks' time, and Styles will lead off question period as the new leader of His Majesty's loyal opposition. Still getting used to His Majesty. Sounds different, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, even though she was the only candidate running for office, Stiles undoubtedly didn't get 100% of the votes. Leaders almost never do. The party isn't saying what the final tally was, but I guess at this point it doesn't really matter. Uh, she is in, and the party seems quite united behind her leadership. I think that's fair to say. I mean, obviously with no contest in the offing, there weren't very many people at the convention center on Saturday, uh, maybe a few hundred, but they were enthusiastic. And let's remember, it was minus 22 outside, so... We can't be terribly shocked that some people may have decided at the last minute, you know what, I'm going to stay home and just watch it online. Uh, the NDP uh, followed the prime directive of politics, which is get a very small room and put a lot of people in it. So it looked packed. So good for them. Good optics. Um, if this kind of thing matters to you, I can tell you the NDP handed out masks to everyone entering the convention hall. And by my rough count, it looked like more than 90 percent of people kept their masks on during the proceedings. But let's go here now. Let's talk a bit about what Stiles' job one is. As she sees it, it's not just repatriating the labor vote, some of which, of course, bled off to the Tories in the last election. It's also appealing to the nearly 60 percent of Ontarians who didn't vote at all last time. Here's Marit Stiles on that. So that's why I today, you know, here I, I called on people, you know, to, to get involved, to come with us, to join us, to be part of something. Because we can do better and we can inspire people. And, and I do think that it is really the key to increasing voter turnout and participation generally. Yeah. There's some overlap here between the NDP and Stiles and what we were talking about earlier with the Liberals. Uh, you know, both parties are struggling to find ways to energize voters and reverse what we saw in 2022, which was historically low turnout. Yeah. And there was some attempt by the journalists there to engage Stiles on a discussion about what's happening with the Liberals right now. You know, their flirtation with the Green Party leader, Mike Schreiner, etc. We were talking about earlier. She wouldn't go there. I can tell you this. She's a very engaging, very appealing person in scrums. Uh, I've often said the NDP has a problem with moderate voters in this province because they often come off as, you know, sanctimonious downtown Toronto, white wine sipping, ultra woke socialists who are out of touch with the concerns of the average Ontarian. But how do you really feel, Steve? <laughs> well, it's not, not necessarily how I feel, but that is the stereotype, you know. Uh, Styles doesn't give off any of that vibe, I have to say. So it'll be quite intriguing to watch what she does as NDP leader and official opposition leader in the next few years leading up to the next election. You know, I do want to stop on that just for one second, because I don't think Andrew Horvath gave off that vibe either, but she didn't engage people in the same way that I think Styles is. And, I, and we could get into a longer discussion, but I mean, Horvath is no longer a provincial politician, so I, I just don't think we need to. But it, it was always one of the mysteries about Horvath's leadership to me that I, I don't think she did give off that that... The, the traditional sanctimonious NDP vibe, mm -hmm. and yet I know a great many of Toronto voters who did not 
glom onto her, if I could put it that way. She made a cameo at the NDP convention, Ah, which I found intriguing because, you know, now that she's in municipal politics, she's the mayor of Hamilton, obviously now, uh, and has already made one public appearance with Doug Ford in which the two of them, let's put it this way, they were a lot nicer to each other on that occasion than they ever were during question period. Uh, But they had a video, which they played in introducing Marat Stiles, and there were a lot of clips from sort of uh, tried, tested, and true New Democrats from the past. Howard Hampton, a former leader, was there. Olivia Chow, former uh, New Democrat MP. Bud Wildman, which is a name which some people, like your father, will remember, uh, a New Democrat from northwestern Ontario many moons ago. Uh, Francis Lankin was in the video as well. And so was Andrea Horvath. And I must admit, I was a little tiny bit surprised to see her in there, uh, if only because... Uh, she's really turned the page on her previous job and has been looking forward to her her new nonpartisan job as the mayor of Hamilton. But uh, but there she was anyway. Uh, Styles will have a, a bit of the spotlight for the next month. Uh, but then, as we mentioned earlier, in March, the Liberals have their own uh, annual general meeting. And with uh, Shriner and the leadership convention rules to be decided, the spotlight will naturally, I think, uh, shift to the Liberals mm-hmm. and uh, what promises to be if we can be blunt about it, a more interesting contest. Um, all the more reason for Styles to make a strong first impression and uh, really uh, grab onto that spotlight for uh, as long as she can when the House returns in the next two weeks. As usual, Mr. McGrath, you are correct. <laughs> <laughs> and there we go. That is the On Poly podcast for Tuesday, February 7th, 2023. Please remember to check out our On Poly newsletter. It comes out every week. You can subscribe at tvo.org slash newsletters. This week, JMM and I continue the debate about the foo surrounding Mike Schreiner's potential run for the Ontario Liberal leadership. Just great, great word, foo-for-ah. foo really It is a good word, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Any feedback you have, we are happy to hear it, good, bad, or indifferent. Write us an email at onpolitics at tvo.org. Here's an email from a listener, Ian Williamson, who writes, and I want to preface this by saying I was uh, born in Ottawa, and so I am sensitive to the concern <laughs> that uh, Mr. Williamson raises. Dear Steve and JMM, I have a suggestion. Whenever you use the term Queen's Park in your podcast, you should simply say Toronto instead for clarity and consistency. After all, Toronto is the seat of the provincial government, so that should suffice. And you seem quite comfortable with that sort of shorthand for the federal government. Go ahead. Try it. I dare you. You will see how you sound to us in the city of Ottawa. Respectfully, thankfully, and cheekily (laughs) yours, Ian Williamson. Ian, thanks for that note. Uh, But just so you know... I almost never say Toronto when talking about the provincial government because I know how that sounds to people outside Toronto. For example, on television, on the agenda, I almost always say the provincial capital when talking about Toronto or the nation's capital, frankly, when talking about your city, Ottawa, because as a Hamiltonian, I get that we don't want to hear... Toronto, Toronto, Toronto all the time. And I can guarantee you that I use the word Toronto more in this response to you than I have in the previous five years combined. But point taken. Okay. This week's episode was produced and edited by Matthew O'Mara. Our managing editor is Shahir Tejvidi. Production support from Nikki Ashworth, Carla Lucetta, and Jonathan Hallowell. COVID is not over yet, people. So let's remember, as my dad likes to say, stay positive, test negative. And I am once again doing both. Yay! (laughs) 